Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2147 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue our extended series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 15 of a 43-week series about the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. And today we're going to continue our series on the good news according to John the Apostle. Last week, we saw we fed over 10,000 people with five small barley loaves and two small fish. His miraculous, he also miraculously walked on the water when his disciples were struggling to get to Capernaum as they were rowing against the waves. And then as soon as he stepped in the boat, he was transported to Capernaum and they were instantly there and the water was, was calm once again. In today's message, the people chased Jesus across that Sea of Capernaum or the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum for more food. They said, man, that was a good feast we had yesterday. We want some more of that. So our scripture today is John chapter 6, verses 22 through 59, and it's on page 1656 in the Pew Bible. Now, I will be reading from the New Living Translation because it flows well, but you can follow along. I'm going to read it in segments as I go through the message like we did last week. So keep your Bibles open and follow along in our message today. Now, roughly 20 to 25 times each week, People are compelled and engaged in a particular activity and sacrifice almost any other activity in order to take advantage of this opportunity. For most, it's a top priority in our lives. Chances are you've already done it at least once this morning. You'll probably participate in this activity again after church and once again before you retire tonight. We do this activity alone but we prefer to share it with community. We include this activity into almost every festive occasion that we plan, and sometimes it is the festive occasion. And by now you know, I'm talking about eating. Not only do we depend on food for survival, we celebrate it as an art. We savor it as a luxury, we share it as communion, and even we abuse it at times as therapy. I've never seen a travel brochure or an advertisement for a cruise that they didn't highlight the importance of all the wonderful food they're going to have and how much it will be. In addition, food is the primary subject of countless magazines, books, websites, and even television shows. In fact, we have entire channels dedicated just to food. The preparation and the consuming nourishment is before us 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all year round. Now those who benefit, of us who benefit from this 21st century luxury that we have, this abundance that we have in our food, cannot fully appreciate the perspective of people struggling to survive in that first century within Galilee and Samaria and all of Judea. Now if we spent time in some developing countries where the next meal is never guaranteed, it would help us to appreciate the significance of Jesus' miraculous provision for that food in the wilderness 
that we learned about last week. John emphasizes that each person received as much as they desired, and that food exceeded their capacity to eat it all. They had 12 baskets full left over. Undoubtedly, this was the first time many of them had gone to bed with a very full stomach for a very long time. Finally, after so much suffering under that iron rule of Rome, so much deprivation under the hands of those unjust aristocrats, and after so much corruption that they see in the temple, God sent his Savior, Jesus, the healer, the provider, the reformer. And they thought, finally, our new king has arrived. Indeed, his arrival signaled the beginning of a revolution that would end all their poverty, restore justice to the land, and usher in the kingdom of God into a new golden era. That was, after all, what God promised in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Finally, the Messiah had come, and he brought with him abundance, perhaps as many as 10,000 men, women, and children. Wonder what Christ would lead them to next. Would he go on to finally claim his throne as the king of Israel and defeat Rome? But we cannot be too critical of this multitude in the wilderness. They woke up the next morning hungry again, like we will tomorrow morning. While most of them had returned to their homes, many of them searched the countryside of that northeastern shore of Galilee for their newfound provider and leader. They wanted to make him king, it said in last week's passage. But they were disappointed to discover that their meal ticket had departed them. So let's look at verses 22 through 25 as we get started in the, the scripture today. The next day, the crowd had stayed on that far shore and saw the disciples had taken the only boat. And they realized that Jesus had not gone with him. Several boats from Tiberias that morning had landed near the place where the Lord had blessed the bread and the people had eaten. So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into their boats and went across to Capernaum to look for him. They found him on the other side of the lake and asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now Matthew and Mark tell us that the Lord had sent his disciples on ahead to Capernaum while he dispersed those crowds. However, we know from last week that the disciples waited until nighttime. They were thinking that Jesus would come and get in a boat with them. And when they waited long enough, they decided to depart and cross over the sea on their own. And as a side lesson here, when we don't wait for the Lord to give us directions in our lives, our lives can, will be a storm that we are buffeted in. It appears that most of the crowd had dispersed after the meal. Perhaps they went to their homes, but a contingent remained behind, seeking Jesus. They had seen the twelve put out to sea without the Lord, and no other boats that night had remained. So they assumed that Jesus must still be in the hill country somewhere, enjoying his solitude. Eventually, they realized that he must have left. They searched but couldn't find him. So they board, boarded those small boats that were tied up nearby, those boats that had come from Tiberias, the city on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. This city was founded by Herod Antipas, and he named it after the emperor Tiberius, who was the heir to Caesar Augustus in both title and power. 
Tiberius was built on the site of a Jewish burial ground. So the religious Jews refused to live there. They hated that city, but they left it open to the Hellenized Jews. Those are the Jews that took on Greek customs and to Herod's political allies. And if you look on your bulletin insert today on the side with bread delivered from heaven, you'll see a map of the Sea of Galilee. Now, some of the text is sort of small, but you'll get an idea of what the lake, the sea looked like. It was 13 miles lengthwise and eight miles wide. And if you look on the left or right-hand side, there's an X there, and that's where he fed the 5,000 plus their wives and children last week. You'll see number two, the route that they took to Capernaum. And if you look down in the bottom left-hand corner, you'll see Tiberius. So these boats came from Tiberius over to where that X is, and then they went from those boats on into Capernaum. So this gives you a graphic satellite image of the Sea of Galilee to get us a little bit of perspective of what we were dealing with. Now the people either heard the Lord's instructions to his disciples or presumed that he would go on to Capernaum next. Now the synagogue there was the center of Jewish teaching in all of that region. There was a synagogue, and that's a Jewish where the Jews worshipped. The synagogue was the center of the, the teaching there. The people were surprised to find Jesus so far away from where he was the previous day. He was last seen on the shoreline just a short time ago, last night. But their question suggests their desire to know not only when he had arrived, but how he had arrived. Based on Jesus' response, they wanted to know why he was there, or perhaps where he why he wasn't where they thought he should be. And that's why he deliberately eluded them the night before. He needed some time of solitude before he crossed over to Capernaum. Now, the Jewish synagogue filled many of the same functions as our local community churches today, our modern-day churches. It was a place of worship or instruction and time of fellowship. And Jesus was an exceptionally popular rabbi in that area. This was his home country. This is where he grew up. And they knew him well. And he was very popular. And he taught primarily in that synagogue at Capernaum. So that's why they thought, well, he might have gone over there because that's where we find him teaching a lot. Now, if you look on your other side of the bulletin insert, this is an existing synagogue it's in ruins now, but it's an existing synagogue that was built in the 4th century. And it was built right on top of the site where Jesus actually taught. The synagogue he taught in was made out of black basalt, so it was a black synagogue. But Jesus taught there on a regular basis. So you see the type of terrain, the type of area where Jesus taught in that city of Capernaum. As we move on to verses 26 and 27, Jesus replied after they said, When did you get here? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. You want to know, you, you want to be f with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. But don't be so concerned about perishable things, perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me his seal of approval. Jesus responded to the spokesperson who asked, When did you get here? He was speaking for the crowd that had come with him. He replied with an indictment, one resonating the words of Moses that we find in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. 
God's covenant people had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because they failed to trust God at the time and his instructions. They shrank back from the promised land because of the physical challenges that loom like giants before them. And during their 40 years in the wilderness, the Lord sustained them with manna, bread from heaven. Manna literally means, what is it? But it was bread from heaven, as we're told in Exodus 16.4 and in Psalm 105, verse 40. And while teaching that the true substance of their life should be the word of God. In Matthew, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus repeated, it says, but Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he's repeating that verse in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. Now, where the Israelites had failed in their trusting of God, Jesus triumphed. And he was deeply desired to see that multitude trust him as that bread of heaven and learn from his victory. Jesus contrasted physical food, which results from hard work. Now, if any of you grew up on a farm, as we did with an apple orchard, you know, in order to produce an abundant harvest, you have to work really hard. You know, Mark and Kelly raising animals there. That's hard work. In order to bring some food. But it perishes quickly. With spiritual food, though, it comes from grace. And it lasts forever. Both are necessary to fulfill two legitimate human needs that we have. Life cannot continue without either one of the physical food and our spiritual food. However, our fallen fleshly nature craves one, that physical food, so much more than we crave that spiritual food, which will strengthen us. The distinction between food that perishes and food that endures for eternal life was symbolic in Jesus' teaching today. And if you don't understand the symbolism that he's bringing here, it'll be hard to understand this passage. Now, physical food represents all the things that satisfy the legitimate body desires. It's like the bread that we're talking about today. It provides us with the physical desires that we have. Those physical desires are only represented by this physical food, but it stands for anything that nourishment, clothing, shelter, medicine, sex, exercise, and even rest. That's what we're talking about, the physical manifestation that we need. On the other hand, though, spiritual food represents that food for our human soul that needs to sustain us and tie us to our maker. Jesus challenged the crowd to stop focusing so much on the food that perishes and devote an equal passion to fulfilling the hunger for their souls, which was their actual deep hunger that they had. He said, in effect, just as God physically sustained the Hebrews when they were in the wilderness and called them to be filled with his word, so I met your physical needs yesterday, and now I call on you to receive spiritual nourishment today. Note the irony of the Lord's invitation to work for their food, which endures to eternal life, which is the Son of Man, only the Son of Man can give us. This paradox echoes an invitation from God in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, which says, Is anyone thirsty? Come and drink, even if you have no money. Come and take your choice of wine or milk 
It's all free. And that was God through Isaiah teaching that the spiritual food was free. As we move on to verses 28 and 29, they replied, we want to perform God's work too. What should we do? Jesus told them, this is the only work that God wants from you. Believe in the one who has sent me, or he has sent. Now, these people's first response to Jesus, to his offer of grace, was especially amusing in the Greek. In the New Living Translation structure, the Greek sentence says, we want to perform God's work too. What should we do? They completely missed the point that Jesus was trying to get across here. They ignored in verse 27, eternal life that the Son of Man can give. And they seized on that one word of work because that's what their life consisted of, working to eke out a meager living, to just have enough to eat on a daily basis. They were more concerned about that which was perishable than that which was imperishable. They were so consumed by their physical concerns that they couldn't comprehend Jesus' figurative teaching here, his figurative language. John uses this breakdown in communication to illustrate the nature of spiritual blindness caused by one's stubborn fixation on that which is physical, that earthly matters that we get so consumed about even today in our work, saying, oh, I got to work in order to make a living. When Jesus taught in other parables, look at the fields. Look at the birds. Don't worry so much about that. I'll take care of you. They were blinded by this physical need. When the world fell into darkness, it ceased to comprehend the light. As we were told in John chapter 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. That light was Jesus Christ. And the darkness can never extinguish it. Those who choose to serve a fallen world system become increasingly self-absorbed, proud, short-sighted, and unable to look long enough to comprehend the spiritual hunger that only God's grace can satisfy. And as the conversation continues, the tension between Jesus and his figurative language and these, this multitude that followed him from where he fed them last night the literal interpretation of this strains to a breaking point. They can't understand it, so they get frustrated. They are only proven to be absurdly thick-headed. Last week, we talked about someone who was thick-headed, someone who was dull-minded. Jesus extends this per earlier paradox. He says the only work is to believe in the one he has sent. And that's not work at all. That's accepted freely by grace. But let's move on to verses 30 through 33. They answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say, Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you true bread from heaven. And that true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They were so consumed and they had their knowledge of the scripture were perverted because they said Moses provided the food, but it was God who provided that man and not Moses. Now on the surface, 
This demand for a sign seems to be a bizarre shift in their attitude from the day before. Because in last week's message, that day before, the same people exclaimed, when the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he is the prophet we have been expecting, in verse 14. But it was an extension of their earlier perspective. This wasn't something new. Although they said this must be the prophet, in their minds they didn't understand it. Their emphasis was on doing and working. Note there also the requirement for belief. If you want us to believe in you, well, what happened yesterday? They're saying, almost like if they forgot it completely. Just yesterday, he provided for 10,000 people. But now they're saying, show us a sign, and then we'll believe in you. The belief in the wilderness is no less temporal than there are earthbound hunger. No sooner had the image of Jesus' sign yesterday faded from their corneas that they needed to see again yet another miracle in order to believe. And that's not what belief is about. Ironically, they cited the provision of the manna through Moses as a precedent for their request. And Jesus responded with that double amen that we talked about a few weeks again, where he says, it is true, it is true, to emphasize the following statement. He then corrected their faulty memory of Hebrew history. Moses did not provide anything. God provided the manna. And in that, that par parallel pronoun, he's basically saying, you all, both you here today and those Hebrews that doubted God in the wilderness, all of you need to understand the spiritual truth. And he links the identity of the listeners to their fathers, those ancient Hebrews who received the manna and still failed in their trust of God. Jesus again associated that provision of manna with God's grace, even back in the wilderness. A greater provision would be provided. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, where he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That was true spiritual bread. This is an allusion to the Father's provision to them. His word became human flesh. In John, it says, the word became human and dwelt or tabernacled among us. He lived with us as one of us. He's the son of God himself. As we go on to verses 34 and 35, he says, Sir, they said, give us this bread every day. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The people's request was similar to that of the Samaritan woman that we studied back about a few weeks ago, the woman at the well. When offered living water that permanently quenches her thirst, she replied, please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get the water in verse, chapter 4, verse 15. Now, the woman at the well, her response was rather coy, though, because she was beginning to understand she understood that spiritual language that Jesus was talking about so much that she ran back to the village and brought the whole village with her so Jesus could talk to the entire village. Unlike this contrast of today where they said, give us this bread every day. Just hang around with us and feed us so we won't have to go out and work for it ourselves. They were thick-headed. They were dull-minded. Therefore, Jesus made himself unmistakably clear in a single sentence, he linked the concept of belief with bread 
with eternal life and himself. He made all those connections of putting that chain together. In verses 36 through 40, but you haven't believed in me, even though you have seen me. However, those the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never reject them. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of those he has given me, but that I should raise them up in that last day. For it is the Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life. I will raise them up in that last day. The people said earlier for them that seeing was believing. Show us a sign and then we'll believe. Jesus had more patience than I do. I would have said, what happened yesterday, you thick-headed people? What was that sign? And yet you don't believe yet? But Jesus was patient with them. Having seen Jesus, they refused yet to believe. Jesus rebuked them for their unbelief and then presented a different perspective on the relationship between signs and belief. Remember the rich man in Lazarus in the belly of Sheol? He says, show him a sign. And he says, well, send someone back from the dead. Then they'll believe. And Jesus said, if they don't believe what the prophets and Moses told them, they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. And he was projecting what would happen in the future. These people claimed that the miraculous sign would give them the ability to believe just one more time, one more sign. But according to Jesus, faith responds to God when he reveals himself. The presence of God then sort of becomes a litmus test. Those who respond and believe are attracted to him. Those who respond but reject him are sent away. Jesus, who is God in human flesh, he became flesh and dwelt among us, came to earth to gather his own, who through their belief can identify with him. In verses 41 and 42, we go on. Then the people began to murmur in disagreement because he had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, son of Joseph? We know his father and mother. How can he say, I came down from heaven? What does this grumbling remind us of? How about the disbelieving Jews that grumbled in the wilderness? Their ancestors of these very people that are grumbling today grumbled for 40 years plus in that wilderness. First, they complained about not having food, so the Lord provided them bread from heaven. Then they complained of only having manna, so the Lord provided them quail in Exodus 16. The manna was a provision and a test of grace. Exodus chapter 16, verse 4, and Deuteronomy 8, 16 tells us it was a test to see if they truly believed. Gather one day's worth of food, and I'll provide tomorrow's tomorrow. And yet they get out and gathered a bunch of it, and the next morning it was full of maggots. And when we presume upon God's grace, we end up with that which is rotten. How they received the manna and whether they followed the Lord's instruction revealed the genuineness of their faith. While Jesus was speaking of his miraculous conception and natural birth, the means by which God became flesh and dwelt among us, these people did not accept the truth 
of him coming from heaven. They said, we know where you came from. We saw you grow up. We know your parents. What do you mean you just came down from heaven? These people did not accept that truth. Jesus' family had probably visited Capernaum many times. That's where the synagogue was. So they went to worship there. And what's more, his brothers probably lived in Capernaum, as we're referenced in John chapter 2, verse 12. These people had seen Jesus during his boyhood and thought they knew all about his roots and his growing up. To them, the phrase, come down from heaven, suggested in their minds something that was miraculous and appeared suddenly and instantaneously, materialized out of thin air, which clearly didn't happen. He became one of us that he might redeem us. As we go on to verses 43 through 51, but Jesus replied, stop complaining about what I said, for no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them to me. And at the last day, I will raise them up. As it is written in scripture, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the father and learns from him comes to me. Not that anyone has ever seen the father, only I who was sent have seen him. Verse 47, I tell you the truth. Or once again, it is true, it is true, a double emphasis. Anyone who believes has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. He says once again, your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread and I came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever, and this bread which I offer so the world may live is my flesh. He's finally tying this analogy together. He said, this bread that you want so desperately, the living bread, I am the bread of heaven, and it's my body, my flesh. Now, eating is an image that he used to illustrate a spiritual truth. People must, in their minds, appropriate that sacrifice of Jesus Christ as the lamb. Because John the baptizer said, the lamb of God who takes away the, the sins of the world in chapter 1, verse 29, he would become that sacrifice or atonement which would pay the penalty on behalf of the whole world. However, only those who believe in him will receive the gift and apply it to their sins those are the ones that will benefit. He was trying to paint a picture here, an illustration that they weren't, just weren't grasping. The truth in this scenario was illustrated in the first Passover. The Israelites were being instructed to sacrifice a lamb on behalf of the whole household, apply the blood to the doorpost and the lentil across the top. They would prepare the meat for consumption, and they had to remain inside the house as the death angel descended upon Egypt. Now, those who did not apply that blood mourned the death of their firstborn son. Those who appropriated that symbol of atonement to their homes on their doorways were spared. As they ate the flesh of that Pascal lamb, the death angel passed over their home. And this was the picture that they were trying to paint. I know Kelly paints some awesome cards and if I had the ability to just paint that picture, but this is what Jesus was doing here, is painting that picture of that Pascal lamb, that Passover, that lamb that takes away the sins of the world. 
At some point in his ministry, Jesus began teaching through parables. They're symbolic stories that use familiar images to teach their spiritual truth. He was painting word pictures here. He explained to his disciples the reason why he taught in parables in Matthew chapter 13, verse 13. He says, this is why I use these parables. For they look, but they don't really see. They hear, but they don't really understand or listen. Parables allowed the observers to see what the heart chose to see. By painting these word pictures, they could see in that image what Jesus Christ was teaching. It guided by their belief in Jesus Christ. Sometimes preachers are guilty of overextending their illustrations. If a speaker is not careful, they can allow that metaphor to take over their lesson and unintentionally teach errors through this. But that's not the case with Jesus, however. He intentionally pressed this metaphor that we're going to see in this next group of verses to extremes to achieve two objectives. First, he left anyone, any reasonable person without any excuses for adopting that physical interpretation of his teaching. How absurd for these people would ever think that he was talking about cannibalism in this passage. Second, he winnowed out the wheat from the chaff, allowing the non-believers own bias to carry them away into the wind. He didn't force them to make that decision. They made it on themselves. As we go into verse 52, then the people begin arguing with each other about what he meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they asked. This is that chaff blowing away, focusing on the wrong subject matter here, on the wrong image that Jesus was painting. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And as we go on to the last verses, 53 through 59, so Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. And I live because, and I live because of, of the living Father who sent me in the same way Anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die, as their ancestors did, even though they ate the manna, but will live forever. And just as a closing verse on here, he said these things while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. So this whole teaching took place in the synagogue as Jesus was teaching them. What does this passage remind us of? is that communion we have every month where we take that wafer, a symbol, and this is all Jesus was talking about, is that symbol, that symbol of his blood, body that was broken, and a symbol of that blood and the juice that was shed for our sins. And this is what Jesus is trying to teach this multitude today. Jesus didn't try to clarify their misconception because they chose not to believe. The problem wasn't intellectual. Instead, he intensified their confusion through teaching and parables. However, there was no danger of those who were genuine believers fully understanding what Jesus meant here. Next week, we'll see what the result of it is. And despite his cryptic language and difficult teaching that they had a hard time understanding, he reassured his authentic believers 
four times in this passage. In his speech, he says, I should raise them up on the last day. He said that in verse 39 and verse 40 in verse 44 and again in verse 54. He repeated that same phrase. And that's our promise for today. As we look to this passage where he taught what the multitude thought that wanted more food was hard teaching. It was clear teaching to those who believed in him. He understood that this was just a word picture that Jesus was painting. That his body was more important, his blood, accepting and believing in him was more important than the physical food that we ate. We have to have physical food in order to keep us alive, but we also have to have spiritual food to keep us alive spiritually, which is found in God's word. Everything God wants us to know is found in the Bible, his complete revelation. And as we go through these lessons every week, the teaching that we want to learn, the lessons we want to learn, is what God has contained in his scripture. Because one day, we'll be raised up to be with him forever. Next Sunday, we'll continue where we left off today. I had to split this message into two. It's just too long a passage. And we'll see next week that the majority of the followers started to desert him. And this abandonment, I'm calling the great desertion. So I'd ask you to please read John chapter 6. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly... I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward. Enjoy your journey and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's word.